Uh, we are in the book of Luke. We've been going through the gospel of Luke um, since the start of the new year. We're going to take a little break after Easter, but it's going to be what we're rooting ourselves in for much of this year. And the idea behind it is we believe that Jesus is just so incredibly compelling. Uh, we believe that there's no one like Jesus. And as we study his, his actions and his teaching and his works, uh, his miracles, and ultimately his death and resurrection and ascension, we will begin to see clearly what Christianity is really all about and what does it mean to follow after Jesus. And this particular passage, I think, may be one of the best ones to understand who Jesus is claiming that he is and what the call of discipleship is. Who Jesus is claiming to be and one of the clearest pictures of the discipleship that Jesus had in mind when he called people to follow him. Right before this passage is the transfiguration, and then Jesus is rejected in Samaria. So he is uh, being—he's been rejected uh, by a group of people, and now he's encountering these possible disciples. Let's pray, and then we'll jump a little bit more in. God, we thank you for this chance to be together for this beautiful church of people from all different backgrounds, um, all different histories different cultures, different races. What an honor it is to be part of this community of people. God, we desire so deeply uh, this morning to bring you praise, to exalt you for who you are, and to follow you. Would you give us the courage and the conviction to love you more deeply and follow you more radically even this day? Amen. Amen. So I was thinking about uh, church history this week. And some of you are like, oh, put me to sleep already, right? Church history. Uh, I love church history. I love learning about it. And it's always astounding to me, uh, as you read history, how far off people get in their following of Jesus. I mean, truly, I took a church history class and listened to hours and hours going through second century, third century, fourth century, all the way through. And it's like, how did they get so far off? I mean, we have people that are mystics, right? And in the same time period, we have the Crusades, right? We have, the, you know, uh, people selling indulgences and all sorts of things in the Dark Ages and leading up to the, the Reformation. And we see, even in the Reformation, though, there may have been clarity on the gospel and, and so many good things. We see Martin Luther and John Calvin condemning people to death for their race or backgrounds, even in our country's history, we see all sorts of uh, failures by the church to understand what it means to follow Jesus. We see that uh, through slavery, through Jim Crow. We've seen that even to this day. And I was thinking about the kind of three different, these are very aggressive, just so you know, uh, inauthentic types of Christianity that we see today. But I wanted to kind of... Uh, get a picture of how we maybe in our country so easily fall astray, how we see it kind of popularized Christianity that I think is opposed to what Jesus is speaking about even today. So the first one I call the award show. You guys ever watch the Emmys or the Grammys? And you always get like at least five or six of them that when they accept their reward, they're like, and I just want to thank God. And it's like, sometimes it's like, oh, I don't know if you want to thank God. Like, like, I know what you did last week. It was in the tabloids, you know. Uh, it's like, why are you thanking God when it doesn't seem like God is a part of your life at all? 
This might be true also. Uh, I could have called this like the suburban soccer parent too, right? There's a God that's there whenever it feels right. You're having a difficult time. You kind of rub the bottle and the genie pops out and he, he fulfills your wish of being a, a Grammy winner or Emmy winner or getting that next house or getting that next thing or healing you from something. And, and it's just kind of, I call them the award show, uh, award show Christianity. The second one is one that other people are familiar with. It's called, I call it God Family Country. And it's, in its worst forms, I think, is Christian nationalism, right? It's Jesus playing in a Western with guns and wars and capitalism as the result of our Christian faith. The last one I call the Ivy League elite. This is the Yale professor, right? Jesus says the Yale professor that offers a radical teaching, progressive policies on homelessness and women's rights and all sorts of issues of justice, promotes socialism, right? But Jesus couldn't do a miracle. He certainly didn't raise from the dead. He was just a radical teacher. I think Jesus pushes back against all of these depictions of Christianity in our culture, in our context that are off. So we're going to encounter three people today that Jesus encounters, and we're going to see how they respond to the call to follow him. The first one starts us off, and uh, we know from a parallel passage in Matthew that this is a scribe. Now, we have no idea, based on the context, why this man says, I'll follow you, Jesus, right? He's, he, they're walking along the road, and this man volunteers himself to be a follower. Why would a scribe, somebody that, uh, in some cases throughout the Gospels, are, are opposed to Jesus, the scribes are? But he desires to follow, and, the, and it's left open-ended as to why. Maybe he thought Jesus was a good teacher, because many people had begun to follow him. Maybe he thought Jesus was a prophet or someone that spoke authoritatively about God. Maybe he thought Jesus would be the next great rabbi, right? That he could learn under and then step off and become one himself. Maybe he thought Jesus, well, maybe Jesus is actually the Messiah. And if I align myself to Jesus, certainly there will be great benefits to me. We know a scribe would have been an educated man. He would have been well-respected in society, and he would have been extremely knowledgeable about the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures as a whole. If anyone would have known what it meant to follow God in the context of first century Judaism, it would have been this man. Yet Jesus says something very peculiar to him. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think that this idea of foxes actually is Jesus' way of, of, of talking about Herod very like subversively. In, in Luke 13, he actually calls Herod uh, the, that fox. And so he might be alluding to saying, well, Herod has a home. If you're looking for that type of king, You'll have a palace. Birds of the air have nests. 
A lot of uh, this kind of language around birds were uh, an apocalyptic symbol during the Second Temple Judaism, which is the time period of Jesus, that referred to Gentile nations. And so in a sense, you could summarize it by saying this. Everyone is at home in Israel's land except the true Israel. The birds of the air, the Roman overlords, the foxes, King Herod, they have made their position secure. The true Israel, Israel, though, is disinherited by them. And if you cast your lot with me and mine, you'll join the ranks of the dispossessed, and you must be prepared to serve God under those conditions. Maybe a simpler reading is just to say, all these people have a home. I don't. So if you want to follow me, it's going to be really hard. You shouldn't expect power, but rejection. You shouldn't expect fame, but hardships. You shouldn't expect a palace, but a cross. And Jesus is trying to get across to this very, very qualified disciple. One that most teachers probably would welcome into their discipleship program. That discipleship with Jesus is costly. It's different than a typical rabbi where the disciple sits at his feet and learns and goes home at the rest, the rest of the day. This would require him to actually follow Jesus, to walk in his footsteps. And this is foundational for us to understand that if we're going to follow Jesus, it is not going to be easy. That's never promised to us. I think when Jesus talks about the burden being light, he means the burden uh, is, is being lifted of sin and shame and guilt, but it's not going to be easy. And this is foundational to us because I think in our kind of American Christianity, we've accepted a Jesus as long as we don't suffer, as long as we don't go through pain, as long as we don't go through trials. A lot of people, in fact, question God because of the evil and suffering in the world. And I'm not trying to, <laughs> to, to, to disqualify that argument that deserves real question or real answers and, and discussion and, 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 and there's a weightiness to that question for sure. But in the Bible, Jesus doesn't see a contradiction between suffering and following him and being a Christian. And so we can expect, as followers of Jesus, to experience what Jesus experienced and practice and participate in his ministry and mission. He's inviting this man not just to listen, not just to learn, but to follow him. You see the difference? Come and go to me to the next town. I might be rejected there. Come to the next town where I might get stoned. Come to the next place where I'm going to the cross. Will you come? Will you follow me even there? Because if you don't, if you're not willing, then essentially you're not fit for the kingdom of of God, is what he's saying. But Jesus does make another, one more like particular point in this passage. And it'd be easy to miss because he uses it a lot in the gospel, but certainly the earlier, the, the earliest readers and the people that were there at the time would not have missed this. Jesus uses the term son of man. And so in the midst of promising that he's going to go through hard times and that he may have to live as a homeless person while he follows Jesus during his ministry, he does say the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
And that reference, the Son of Man, is a direct correlation to Daniel 7. And Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, is where it's prophesied that one like the Son of Man would come on the clouds to rescue his people. This is the messianic passage, the the king that's coming passage that we look to. So when Jesus is talking about himself and calling himself the Son of Man, he surely is pointing back to what Daniel prophesied years before. So Jesus is saying, you're going to go through hard times, but the person that you think that I might possibly be, I actually am. And if you stick with me, you will experience the deliverance that Daniel 7 speaks about. You will experience the salvation that's promised in the Messianic passages of the Old Testament. It's hard, isn't it, to see this scribe? I, mean, I guess we don't really know. Maybe he decides, yes, I'm, I actually am going to follow. Maybe he, he goes away uh, and then comes back. Maybe he, he rethinks it later and joins the followers of Jesus. We have no idea. But I think for many of us, the call to follow Jesus, we must see beyond our own expectations, beyond our comfort, and to know that even though we're going to face trials, we are following the Son of Man, the Deliverer of Israel, and not just Israel, but the whole world. The second possible disciple comes to Jesus, and this one seems even worse than the first one. Uh, Jesus, at this time, asked the man, he says, follow me. But the man replies, first let me go and bury my father. Seems like a pretty legitimate request, does it not? And Jesus says this, that the, the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. During this time period, uh, the Jewish people practiced a unique type of burial that wasn't practiced. And this is, wasn't known until probably about uh, the last 50 years, actually. And they, they started to understand that this, um, the idea of burial in, the, in, the, uh, in Judaism at the time was that they'd have two burials so for, the, for their family members. So after the person died, they would, they would bury the body. And then after one year, they would take that same body and they would put it with other families in the same area in, like, in, in a box. And they would be buried together. Now, that, besides that, that may sound gross to many of us. This was the ritual that they would perform. And so most likely, this man had not just died. Because if he had just died, like he had just happened before the first burial, he, he would have been by the body and he would, have not, he would have been ritualistically unclean. And so most scholars don't think that this man was in the process of burying his father for the first time and all of a sudden saw Jesus stop by the side of the road. Jesus asked him to follow him in the midst of that. Most people think that what's happening is this man's saying, first let me finish this burial process of a year. Let me finish this process of burial. It could have been a couple weeks away. It could have been a few days away. It could have been months away. We don't don't really know. But essentially, Jesus is saying to him, my call on your life is more urgent than even the burial customs of the day. It's more urgent than burying your own father. Now, some of us say, like, not yes, of course, in theory, Jesus is more important than our, than our, than our parents. Like, that makes sense if he's the God of the universe. But I want you to, to feel the, the weight of this, okay? 
for this man to be called to, to not finish this process of burial and instead follow Jesus immediately. In that context of that time, a failure to bury one's father or mother would be disregarding something that was at the heart of Jewish faithfulness, at the heart of what it meant to follow God. Burial customs had been raised to the highest command and took precedence over uh, reciting the Shema, over studying Torah, over obeying Torah and sacrifices, offering sacrifices. Even the laws preventing the high priests and the Nazarites from touching a dead body and thus contracting corpse impurity were relaxed for burying one's parents. And this understanding of the law at that time was tied directly back to the fourth commandment where it says, honor your father and your mother. This was one of the clearest ways by which one obeyed God in their culture, in their context. Most people believe that that commandment was tied back to Moses, right, at the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. And they believe that Moses was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. That the messianic figure, the king that was coming, is going to be tied to Moses. He's going to be one like Moses, setting the people free from slavery and oppression and lead them into the promised land. Moses, too, performed miracles and was this, this, uh, this, had this intimate relationship with Yahweh. It's impossible to overstate how important Moses was and how important the law was to the Jewish people at that time. It centered their lives. It was so important. To disobey the law meant to claim authority over the law. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he's saying, I have greater authority than the law of Moses. And I have greater authority than the greatest prophet in Israel's history. That's how astounding this statement of what Jesus is asking this man to do would have been. And so Jesus claims to him, he says, listen, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. That's the best way to translate that. Because I am one that's greater than Moses. My kingdom that's coming is more urgent I have greater authority than even the law. This is, takes precedence over anything else you could do in your life. And the second thing that's fascinating about this passage, and you'll have to just trust me on this or look it up later, but there's only two other instances in the entire scripture where burial commands were said to not have to be followed. The burial customs. And those are in two places. In Jeremiah 16 and Ezekiel 24. And in both of those instances, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were told not to follow the burial customs by who? By Yahweh himself. And in both examples, the reason that they were supposed to stop the burial customs was because God was going to act in history right then and there. So Jesus was demanding something that only Yahweh himself could demand. And he was proclaiming that God the Father was going to act in history like he did in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that something was happening that was so urgent that everything else should be left to the side. And he says, instead of doing that, come with me and preach the kingdom of God. 
I tell, I've told the story, if you've been part of our church for a while, I'm just going to repeat it because it's probably been a few years. You know, some of you probably don't remember, and uh, most of you probably weren't there. So I'm going to use it again. Uh, but I got to travel to Ethiopia a number of times uh, when I worked for a nonprofit, and I worked with an incredible pastor. He's probably, uh, yeah, like he's my idol, basically, is what I would say. <laughs> Somebody that I, I look up to more than anybody else and, uh, and when it comes to ministry. And his name is Pastor Tashali. And he um, started doing ministry in a town of about 100,000 people, in a region of 100,000 people. And at the time, there were less than 10 Christians that they knew of in that region when he started his ministry. And 25 years later, uh, there was about 25,000 Christians there. And his church in the, uh, in the small well, not, I guess it's not that small, but this town of Aliso, Ethiopia is a couple thousand people. They've helped start churches in all over the region, 10, 12 different churches. And now his daughter churches are having granddaughter churches. And I said to him, wow, like, how did you do this? How did this happen? How did so many people come? Like, what's your trick? What's your strategy? What did you do? And he looked at me and he started laughing at me. And I said, well, this is not very kind. You know, like, why are you, like, I'm not an idiot, you know. Like, so like, why are you laughing? He couldn't stop laughing. And he looked at me and he says, we just tell people about Jesus. And I said, oh, that's a little bit humbling, right? He says, oh, yeah, we, we have people and we empower our people to go tell their friends about Jesus. So we go to a new town. We start telling people about Jesus. And a couple of people become Christians. And then they go tell their friends about Jesus. And a few more people become Christians. And then they go tell their friends about Jesus. And a few more people become Christians. And there you go. You have a church. He goes, that's how, that's how you do it. That's like the strategy right there of their church. And I just love that. And I think sometimes we make it so complicated about what it means to follow Jesus, right? Of course, there's, there's things that we should obey. There's things that we should follow. There's things that we should fight for. things that we should fight against, right? But a major part of what it means to follow Jesus is just like sharing the good news of what God has done in our lives. All right, the third possible disciple Jesus, again, says something that's <laughs> pretty hard to take, right? He says, uh, this guy comes up to him. He says, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say good, go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, seems like a very reasonable uh, request, right? You're going to go on this journey with Jesus. Hey, maybe he was here for the first couple people and he heard, you got to go and be you know, homeless. You got to go. You're going to have no place to lay your head or you, know, you got to go. Uh, you can't wait a few months to bury your father. And he's just saying, let me run back to my house real quick. You know, maybe it's like right around the corner. Maybe it's a mile away. And Jesus says this to him. Like, I mean, Jesus is kind of a jerk right here, right? That's what he says. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So when we think of farming, I don't know much about farming, so don't hold me to this if this is I'm like, it doesn't seem that hard, right? You just, you have these tractors and you go in the straight line. It seems like, okay, but that's not how they did it then. They had a plow, right? They, and they, they, were, they were plowing a field and they were sometimes like on uneven ground. They were on hillsides. They, they had different type of soil than we have here. So there were rocks and things. And so what Jesus is saying is if you're trying to plow a field 
and you're constantly looking back behind you, you're going to hit a rock and it's going to destroy your plow. Uh, you're going to make a really crazy line, right, and get off track. And so he says, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. I mentioned that all throughout the Old Testament, people were waiting for the Messiah, their deliverer. People believed that the Messiah would come like Moses. But they also believed that, that the Messiah would be like the prophet Elijah. And this analogy is just too close for Jesus not to be alluding, uh, uh, alluding back to Elijah and Elijah, Elisha, which is recorded in 1 Kings 19. Jesus is clearly giving an example of what's happening here and drawing our attention back to what he's asking this person. So Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, goes to Elisha, right? Really creative names back then. And he says, you're going to be the next prophet of God. Come and follow me, right? I'm going to teach you how to do it. And if you recall in the story, I don't know how many have read 1 Kings 19 recently, but if you have, he asks if he can go back and kiss his parents goodbye. Isn't that interesting how close it is? Well, it's the same, right? And Elijah, what does he say? Go ahead. Go say goodbye to your parents. Come on back and we'll make you the pro a prophet of Israel. So Jesus is very, being very, uh, for us it's like very coy, but I think then they would have been very obvious. He is, he's saying that one greater than Elijah's here. That his call is greater than Elijah's call. That his call to discipleship, to come and follow him, is greater than Moses' call. That his call is like God's, Yahweh God's call. And that God is acting right here and right now in history. Do not miss it. Do not look back. So we cover this passage, and there's so much here, and it is very challenging. And I, I don't want to take the edge off of these statements at all, because I think they need to strike our comfortability in our following of Jesus. But what I wanted to just say as like a, a brief summary before I get to the, a little bit of a broader summary is that we must come to Jesus on his terms. Amen? If we come to Jesus as just a moral teacher, we've missed it. So let's see the summary of what Jesus proclaims about what discipleship would be like. The four expectations if we're going to be followers of Jesus. Number one, in this passage, he says it will not be easy. And we're going to go fast. Number two, you will experience what Jesus experienced and participate in his ministry and mission. Number three, you should be preaching the kingdom of God. Number four, your most important priority above everything else is Jesus. Not your friends. Not your work, not your spouse. Now, Jesus never says, leave your spouse or leave your kids, right? He does say, leave your father and leave your mother, right? But Jesus has to have greater authority. At least that's what he's saying here, is he not? Than, his, than, than, your, than your family, than your friends, than your kids, than your mental health, than your money, than your safety, than your power, than your, the cultural expectations put on you. All of these things find significance when we find Jesus. All of these, many of these things are good things, 
right, find their significance. All of life finds its significance when we find Jesus and we follow Jesus. And there's four claims that Jesus makes in this passage, and I just want to summarize them for you so that you don't forget. Number one, he is like the Son of Man. He is one that's greater than Moses. He has the authority that Yahweh has, and one greater than Elijah is here. What is interesting about this passage is that each, in each instance, every one of the men that encountered Jesus seemed to be willing to follow him. But they just seemed to, well, I guess we don't know for sure, but it seemed like they misunderstood who he is. For Jesus, following him meant making him ultimate. It meant believing that Jesus is Lord of all of life. He was trying to get across that this is not just somebody that you align yourself to 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 get the next step up. This is not someone that you align yourself with so you can get power or that you can have fame or that so even so that you can know more about God. That you're following Him to to actually know what God is all about. That in their midst was God Himself, and that if they were going to participate in His program, it was going to be hard but it was the deliverance of all their people from sin and from death and from Satan. Jesus claims to be ultimate. Is he ultimate in your life? He, he claims to have dominion over every aspect of your life and my life if we choose to follow him. Will we allow him that dominion? Will we allow him that type of power in our own lives? 